Welcome to Browncroft, and welcome to the final weekend of summer. Uh, well, the good news is football is here. That's good. Yes, yes. Uh, depends on what you uh, like, but uh, the good or bad news could be that the, these are right around the corner as well. Uh, but for right now, let's just stick, for my opinion, to the good news. Football is here. And uh, for those of you, uh, you know, who are football fans, I would like to publicly proclaim here that I am a Bills fan. Uh, yes, yes, that is a lot of excitement. And uh, for the next five weeks, we are just going to be really excited. That's fantastic. Um, as a Bills fan, I've learned that uh, after that point, uh, I will no longer be thinking of cheering for the Bills, but looking forward to the draft this coming year. So uh, thankfully, I have married into a Packers family. So... Um, about mid-October or so, I start actually cheering for the Packers, and most of the time that works out pretty well. I have someone to cheer for in the playoffs, so that's pretty cool. Um, anyway, uh, I want to show you, the Packers have a, a long lineage of people in their past who are just legends, and maybe the top one of those legends is a guy that I want to show you right now uh, up on the screen here. Does anybody know who this is? Oh, yes. You, yes, a very smart, very smart crowd. Vince Lombardi, one of the greatest coaches in NFL history. As a matter of fact, they named the Super Bowl trophy after Vince Lombardi. He was that good of a coach. Um, but he had trying times as a coach. 1961, they had just lost the NFL championship the year before. They had lost it to the Eagles in a fourth quarter comeback, and, and it was pretty devastating. So all the guys show up to camp in 1961, and all these rugged football players who've played their whole lives, they, they, they're sitting there in the locker room waiting for Vince Lombardi to get there, and he shows up. And Vince Lombardi shows up, and there, he just doesn't say a word. He's just quiet, and he just looks at him. And the guys are, okay, what's he going to say? And then Vince Lombardi just holds up a football and he goes, gentlemen, this is a football. That was probably the reaction a lot of the guys had in the, in the crowd too. It, the, but then he would go on and he explained about this football. So he would say, you know what? This is leather. It's gonna, it, when, when it gets in different conditions, it's gonna act differently. When you throw the football, hey, quarterbacks, pay attention. When you throw the football, you gotta throw it with the laces, with the laces. And then he would go through every aspect of the football. Then he would march them out onto the football field and he'd say, the game is played in between these lines right here. Don't go out of bounds over there. And the, that spot down there, that's called the end zone. That's the spot where you got to run the ball or throw the ball past. You got to get it in there to score. The players kind of thought, you know, Vince Lombardi, little loco, perhaps. But he had a reason for doing this. He knew that in order for the game to be played, you have to understand the basics first. If you get the basics wrong, then nothing else matters. 
And the Packers went on to win the NFL championship that year. And Vince Lombardi did that every year in training camp for the years after as well. The same thing is true in the Christian life. If you don't have the basics down, what comes after that doesn't matter. And so what I'm about to say is kind of a big idea of my talk. And it might seem so simple that you want to ignore it. But I want, it's my version of saying this is a football. Are you ready? All right. Being a Christian means you follow Jesus. Right? Being a Christian means you follow Jesus. That's what it really means to be a Christian, to give our lives to him. I'm not saying that we earn our salvation or that, that there's anything we can do to get it, but it is a part of, of being a Christian. You have to follow Jesus. We aren't following a rule book. We're following a person, and his name's Jesus. We're going to look at a passage today that helps us kind of unpack what that looks like for us. And before we approach that passage, I'm going to give you a little background. But I'm going to tell you first, it's in Philippians 2. So if you want to either turn to your, the Bible in front of you, the Bible that you brought, uh, look at the Bible online. If you're on an online version, I'm going to be using the New Living Translation this morning. Uh, so you can look that, that version up. Let me tell you, each passage of the Bible is really written to a specific audience. And when you look at the New Testament of the Bible, you have these letters, and these letters are written to specific people in specific churches for specific reasons. And it just so happens that Philippians is one of those letters that actually we know a pretty good deal about the recipients of that letter. Let me tell you a little bit about that. Acts 16 gives us basically the start of the church in Philippi. Paul and his companion Silas decide that they are going to Philippi to be the first people there to tell people about Jesus. And the first group of people they run across are a bunch of religious women who are having a service down by the water. They, they meet these women and they begin to talk with them a little bit further about who Jesus is. One of those women named Lydia has this moment where she goes, Jesus is the way. I decide to follow Jesus right now. And not only that, her whole house decided to follow Jesus. And so that was the beginning of the church there. But then Paul and Silas start to walk around the town for a little bit more. And, and as they're walking around the next few days, there's this girl who keeps on following them around going, these are servants of the most high God. These are servants of the most high God. These are servants of the most high God. And this girl was actually a, a slave. She, because she had demonic influence, she was able to tell the future and as you can imagine, that made her owners a ton of money. But she just kept on after Paul and Silas over and over and over again. And eventually, 
Paul had enough. And he said, get out of her to that spirit who was controlling her, and it left. And that freed her physically, and it freed her spiritually. But as you can imagine, her owners were not too happy about that. And so they decided that they would cause a riot in the town and see how bad of a situation they could get Paul and Silas into. And there was this huge riot that happened, and eventually Paul and Silas got thrown into jail. While they're in jail, they're singing and praying in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden an earthquake comes and shakes the whole place, and the shackles fall off of every prisoner that's there. And the jailer, the guy who's in charge of the whole place, wants to do the honorable thing. And so, so he thinks, everybody's escaped. I'm just going to fall on my sword. I'm going to kill myself. And so he gets ready to do that. But then Paul yells out from the middle of the jail, hey, everyone's safe. Don't harm yourself. And this jailer was so overcome by Paul and Silas and the way that they lived their lives and, and seeing what God did that he said, what do I have to do to be saved? And Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And that was the start of the Philippian church. These three people from three totally different backgrounds, all following Jesus and learning how to do that together. And so Paul writes them a letter and we're going to read a piece of that letter today, and we're going to see how maybe there's just a hint for each one of them, a little piece that Paul wanted them to take away. Let's read it together. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul starts off this passage by showing and reminding the people in the church who Jesus is. He makes it really clear, Jesus is God. Jesus has all the, all the power, all the authority in the universe, and yet he came to live with us. Paul puts it this way, he didn't think that his rights were something to cling to. It's kind of like, uh, let's go back to the football analogy, okay? You guys ever watch a running back run in, in football? right? They're, they're, they're not 
putting the ball out here and going, oh, you want to take it? That's fine. That's okay. Go ahead. A running back will cling to that football for all they're worth. Guys have to come out and hit it out of their arms in order for them to, to let it go. Even then, they're trained, don't let go. And in a lot of ways, I think that's similar to the way that we are trained kind of in our society when it comes to our rights. Not that our rights are necessarily bad, not that it's a bad thing to have rights. It's a beautiful part of, of our society. But we place rights as such a high thing that sometimes it's a non-negotiable. I'm never going to give up my rights. But that's not the way of Jesus. You know, we live in what we like to think of as a meritocracy, which is a fancy word. I try not to use fancy words because my brain melts. Um, but it's a meritocracy, which means I earn what I get. I get what I earn. I get what I earn. And so one of the most valuable pieces of paper that we own in our society is our resume. And we start building it when we're in kindergarten, right? I mean, the parents, you're sending them to the right school and you got to go to this school so you can go to that school. And, you know, I work with college students and I see it still, you know, well, I'm in this school, but now I got to build, get this internship and that internship so that my resume looks good so that I can get this position of authority and then this position of authority all the while grasping what we have. That's not the way, though, of Jesus. And Lydia, that I told you about, would have gotten this. Lydia would have known, hold on, this is actually for me. I see where you're going here, Paul. Because Lydia, I told you, was a seller of purple cloth. Or maybe I didn't tell you that, but she was. A seller of purple cloth. And, you know, we look at that and we go, great, you sold purple cloth, fantastic. But that was like being a stockbroker back in the day. Purple was the color. If you wore purple, it was the equivalent of having a Rolex and a Lamborghini all in one. It was, you are wearing purple, whoa, you made it. A pound of purple was worth more than a pound of gold in ancient times. And part of the reason was because of how purple was created. It was a very specific process that you had to use. There was no other way you could make it in the world. Um, and let me show you how it was made. It was made by these little guys. These little sea snails. Someone discovered somewhere along the way that if you boil these sea snails and let them sit for days at a time, what will eventually happen is this chemical composition starts taking place and you can add other things and lo and behold, purple is formed. And so these sea snails would, would literally empty themselves of who they are and they would become something totally different but something glorious. Here's an interesting thing in this passage. As you read verse 7, it says, instead, he gave up his divine privileges. What that really means right there, what it really says is he emptied himself. And, it, and, and most of the time when you read that, you go, he emptied himself. That doesn't make any sense. So they, they translate into something different that makes sense. But he emptied himself. 
I don't think it's a mistake that Paul used that terminology when he used this because he wanted us and Lydia in this passage to understand that following Jesus means giving up our rights. Following Jesus means giving up our rights. Well, Lydia wasn't the only person he was talking to in this passage. There was also that slave girl. And it's interesting as you read on, the next sentence says this. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. So Jesus left all the authority and power in the whole universe and he became a human being. He became a slave. I think it's pretty clear for that girl who wasn't even given a name. We don't even know her name, but we know that Jesus identified with her. Paul wants her to know Jesus knows what that's like. To follow Jesus is to identify with the marginalized. My mom is a Native American woman and she grew up in the South during segregation. And I grew up hearing some of these stories about how uh, she was treated and her family was treated. Um, One of the things I know about the time was that my grandfather was one of the drivers of the community. There weren't many cars there and, and he was a driver. So he would have to drive people often to the hospital. But when he got to the hospital, There were many times, the majority of times actually, when they would arrive to the hospital with someone very sick, when the people at the hospital would say, you can just turn around and leave, we don't serve your kind here. That was a normal part. There were people who who became gravely ill and died because they weren't able to receive basic medical treatment. So I heard these stories growing up and, and I think that helped shaped my view of the marginalized, but I think more, even more than that, probably one of the things that my parents did to display this for me in a very practical way was that they just invited people into our home, people who were not necessarily like us or um, didn't, didn't have the same experiences as us. One of the things I remember pretty fondly is having the opportunity to have some special needs people from our church over to our house. And I didn't think much of it at the time. You know, at the time I was probably a teenager and, you know, was too cool for school and all that jazz. But as I look back on it now, what I realized that my parents did was they set a place at the table for people who don't have a place at the table. They did that quite literally. They set a place there for them. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. It's to literally not just say, oh yeah, yeah, you're loved, but to set a place for people who no one else is acknowledging and respecting. Because that's what Jesus does. Well, finally, in this passage, We look and we read through it. And the jailer isn't out either. Paul's got a message for him. It says this in verse eight. 
When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. The jailer would have had quite an experience with criminals. And I'm sure if I was that guy, it probably wouldn't have been that great of an opinion that I had of them. This guy, just put yourself in his shoes. He's a hardworking guy. He's kind of the equivalent of blue collar in our day. Not the top of the top, not the, not the bottom of the bottom. He just, he's a hardworking guy, shows up to work day after day, and he's interacting with all of these criminals. You can only imagine the insults that are heaped on him day after day after day as he's shackling up people and, and they're you know, swearing at him and yelling at him or, or he knows some of the things that they have done. And, and the worst of the worst of these criminals were the people who got crucified. Those were the people who were like the absolute worst. They were crucified because for them, it was a sign for everybody else to say, don't mess with the Roman government. Don't you dare do what these people have done. And this jailer, even though he had this experience with them day in and day out, Paul's reminding him, Jesus took that same road. Jesus was one of those criminals for our sake. Jesus died for us. Jesus was that person in our place. It's pretty clear to follow Jesus is to love your enemies. Following Jesus means loving your enemies. And just as kind of a side note, it relates to this, it really relates to the whole passage, but in, in context of that, it, 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 it can't go without saying, there's no place for racism in the church whatsoever. There's, there's just none, it's inexcusable. You can't look at a fellow human being and be a follower of Jesus. You can't say I'm a Christian, which means I'm following Jesus. You can't look at another human being and say, I hate you based off of your race or background or whatever. That's inconsistent with the message of Jesus. And so, Paul has this letter to these three people. They're taking this, they're looking at this, and Paul ends it with the, the beautiful refocusing on Jesus. I'm gonna read that again because it's so powerful. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord. We look at that phrase and it can seem kind of archaic. It can seem like a, a relic from the ancient past, right? For us, we don't talk about Lord very much. But in the day that this was written, people knew exactly what this was about. Because the thing that got Christians in trouble the most wasn't that they said, oh, we worship Jesus. 
people were worshiping all sorts of stuff back then. It was not a big deal to say we worship Jesus. The thing that got them in trouble is that they said Jesus Christ is Lord. Because in the day, you had to say Caesar is Lord. That was, that was the thing you could not do. You could not get around that. He is king. He is our final authority. He, what he says goes. And for Christians, they said, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the one that we follow. He is the one that we say, whatever he says goes. He is worthy. He is worthy. It's a different way to live our lives. And it's kind of an upside-down way to view the world. But I think it's totally worth it. And I want to end with one illustration for you all. It's an illustration of a man. And I got his picture up here. And maybe some of you have heard his story. I hadn't, really, until about a year ago. His name is Nicholas Winton. And Nicholas Winton was a stockbroker in the 1930s in London, England. He had everything going for him. Everything was, was going great. He was very happy, very wealthy. He was successful by all means. And he decided he was going to take a, a ski trip. But one of his friends happened to call him and say, you know what, could you actually stop your plans to go to Switzerland, and can you readjust those to come to Czechoslovakia, to Prague? And so Nicholas went and thought about it for a little bit, and he said, okay, well, all right, I'll do that. And he went to where his friend was, and his friend was there at a huge refugee camp. Because at that point, the Nazis were pushing all of the Jewish people out of their homes and out of all of their land. And there was just massive numbers of Jewish people there in Prague. And Nicholas Winton arrived at this scene and he was, he was moved by it. Um, and he was specifically moved for all the children. He saw thousands and thousands and thousands of children. And he said, I got to do something for this. I got, there's got to be a way to, to, to work this. So... He created his own phony kind of agency that he made, and he created phony paperwork that got around government bureaucracies. He set kids up with host families in London. Then he, he actually financed stuff himself, and he raised finances for these children. At the end of the war, or at the end of that time, there were 669 kids who had been rescued from certain death by Nicholas Winton. Uh, one of the most remarkable parts about it is that he didn't tell anybody about it. And so this story went untold for 50 years. He just kept this journal, he kept the journal in his attic with the documents and everything in it. And one day his wife came across it. And his wife goes, this is remarkable. And so she took this journal and she took it to the BBC. And the BBC put on a show. And Nicholas Winton didn't know what, what, who was in the audience of this show. But um, 
a lot of the people there were people that he had helped save. So I wanna show you just a, a video snippet of this show to give you a picture of what that was like. But back here is the list of all the children. This is Vera Diamond, now Vera Gissing. We did find her name on his list. Vera Gissing is with us here tonight. Hello, Vera. And uh, I should tell you that you are actually sitting next to Nicholas Winton. <laughs> and it was just so wonderful, so terribly, terribly touching. Can I ask, is there anyone in our audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton? If so, could you stand up, please? Nicholas Winton died in 2015 at the age of 106. And he had, at that point, over 6,000 people who were alive directly because of that choice to say no to a ski trip and yes to go to some place where he could be used in a completely different way way. He had every right in the world to use his money, to use his time, to use his comfort to go on that trip. And yet he put that aside and said, I'm going to use my life in a different way. And that is what Jesus calls us to. Yeah, we have the right to do certain things, to use our money the way that we want to. We have the right to say what we want to say. We have the right to do what we want to do. But he calls us to put him as the center and to follow him. And that, in the end, is the way that's worth living. There's a prayer that I want to have you guys look at, and I'm going to pray at the end. And it's a really dangerous prayer, but I think it's a prayer that really symbolizes this whole series that we've been talking about, White Flag. It's the ultimate prayer for this series, and it's us surrendering ourselves to God. And this is not a ma magical incantation, okay? So there's not, it's not that, but if this expresses the desire of your heart, I would invite you to pray this prayer today because I think there would be nothing like a church that was focused on this. Let's look at it. Lord Jesus, I surrender to you, and in the power of your spirit, I will go where you want me to go. I will do what you want me to do.
Say what you want me to say. Give what you want me to give. My life is yours. I'm going to actually pray to, to close us. And if that's the desire of your heart, I just, you know, you can either verbally say it, you can say it with inside of your soul, but I would invite you because there's no journey like the journey of following Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you for each one of these people. I thank you that you have brought them out here today. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you that you invite us into something greater than ourselves and our own rights. You invite us into following you. And so Lord, right now, I pray for my life. I pray for those here. Lord Jesus, I surrender to you. And in the power of your spirit, I will go where you want me to go. I will do what you want me to do. Say what you want me to say. Give what you want me to give. My life is yours. Amen.